morning we are returning to our sermon series on the book of Matthew. Uh, we are still in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're in chapter 6 this morning, and that can be found on page number 1503 of the Pew Bibles. And uh, we're going to look at verses 6, 1 through 8, and then jump and look at verses 16 through 18. And then next week, Pastor Martin will be with us, and he's going to preach uh, the, ser- or the um, Lord's Prayer for us. And so he'll take the, the section that we're skipping this morning. Um, because uh, my wife and I are on vacation this next week. And so again, today's passage, though, is Matthew chapter 6. We're looking at verses 1 through 8, and then 16 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus continues um, and says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them, If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret." Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Jumping down to verse 16. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we've heard your words and we ask that you would cause them to be impressed upon our hearts Uh, that we may worship you and know you more deeply. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So there was once a king uh, who was over a kingdom, and one of his subjects was a gardener. And uh, one day this gardener uh, realized that he had grown this incredibly large carrot. And uh, he decided that he wanted his king to have it. And so he put this carrot onto a cart, and he brought it, to the palace of his king. And he said to the king, Your majesty, you rule this kingdom with such kindness and grace. I am so thankful to be one of your subjects. And when I saw that my garden had grown this mighty carrot, I knew that I wanted you to have it. And so the king says to the gardener, Well, thank you. I accept your gift. And I am pleased that you wanted me to have the fruit of your labor. In fact, because of your love for me, And your joy in being a part of my kingdom, I'm going to give you even more land 
to cultivate and to develop, to use for whatever you would like. And so the king gives this gardener several fields. Well, the gardener is very humbled. And so he just bows and he has no other words except to say, thank you, your majesty. And then he leaves. Well, turns out there was a nobleman who had overheard everything that was happening that day in the palace. And the nobleman thinks to himself, well, if that's what a carrot will get you, I wonder what will happen if I give the king something better. And so the next day, the nobleman decides to go into the uh, palace and he brings his finest horse. And he says to the king, "Uh, your majesty, you rule this kingdom with such kindness and grace. I'm so thankful to be one of your subjects. I want you to have my finest horse. And so the king looks at him and says, thank you. Then after a long, awkward pause, the king says, I've accepted your gift. You may go. And the nobleman thinks to himself, what what is going on here? And so he he turns around and he starts to leave. And then after a moment, the, the king interrupts him and he says, wait a minute. And then the nobleman smiles, thinking finally that he's going to receive this great reward. And he turns around and he says, yes, your majesty. And the king says, you know what? Yesterday, when uh, that gardener brought the carrot, he, he was giving me the carrot. But you were giving yourself the horse. You see, in our passage this morning, Jesus is warning us about giving our religious obligations to ourself as opposed to giving them just to him. Jesus is clear that God offers us a reward by giving him our religious obligations, but our temptation is going to be to settle for the rewards that this world has to offer for our own selves, rather than giving them to God for his glory to use as he sees fit, and then to reward us however he chooses to reward us. And so our outline for this morning is this. First, we're going to look at the obligations of the Christian life. And then we're going to look at the way Christians approach their obligations. And then finally, the reason Christians perform their obligations. So some people bristle when we talk about duties and obligations in the Christian life. Anytime you say that there is obligations in the Christian life, most people hear that as legalism. They think what we're saying is that you have to perform these obligations in order to be accepted by God. They think that somehow by may, we, we, we do these things in order to maintain our relationship with God and to assure ourselves of heaven, uh, but that's not what we're saying. We enter the kingdom with nothing but faith in God's promises for mercy and for forgiveness. But once we are in the kingdom, we are citizens of the kingdom. We are subjects of the great king. We are children of God. We are part of his family, and he will cause us to bear his family resemblance in how we live our lives. So these are not obligations that we need for acceptance. These are obligations that flow from acceptance. We don't perform them in order to be God's child. We perform them because we are God's child. They are not the cause of our salvation. They are the consequence of our salvation. And so in our passage... When Jesus assumes that we are giving and praying and fasting, he's assuming that because generosity and prayer and self-control are obligations, they're expectations of the Christian life. That's why Jesus says, when you give to the needy, when you pray, 
when you fast. In scripture, God's people are actually commanded to be generous. We are commanded to pray. We are commanded to uh, have self-control. In fact, self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit, Paul tells us. Uh, Just a few examples. Paul concludes his first letter to Timothy this way. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. The writer of the Hebrews concludes his letter with these words. He says, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So we are commanded by our king to be generous. And then prayer. Prayer is also an obligation. Uh, Romans 12, Paul says, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Now, some people wonder, well, what's God's will for me in life? Uh, Actually, lots of ink is spilled uh, with various books of people telling us how to discern uh, what God's will for us in life is. But actually, God is quite clear what his will for us is. In, in 1 Thessalonians, he says, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you. So that's it. God's will is that we rejoice, that we pray, and that we live thankful lives. So generosity and prayer are commanded by God, but is fasting commanded by God? Actually, fasting is not a specific command in the New Testament, um, but it does seem as if Christians will be fasting. Uh, Speaking to the church, Jesus says, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, meaning the time after Jesus has died, rose again, and ascended into heaven, which is now the church age. And Jesus says, then they will fast. And then we see this in the book of Acts. As soon as the book of Acts begins, uh, Judas is replaced uh, by, Math- by Matthias because the uh, apostles come together and they fast and they pray. Uh, when they're planning churches and they're deciding who's going to be the elders in these churches, we see uh, the believers in Acts fast and pray. Uh, they fast and pray when deciding which, which uh, people among them are going to be sent out to be missionaries. Um, but Paul does tell Timothy to train yourself to be godly. So fasting, uh, one of the greatest benefits of fasting is that it is a way to train ourselves to be godly. So what what happens in fasting is we are denying ourselves, typically food, and what we experience when we deny ourselves this food is we experience the battle between what our flesh desires and and the promise that God has for us in fasting that we can somehow bridge this gap between the seen and the unseen. And so, so we're trusting and fasting that as we perform this activity, uh, that, that there's some kind of benefit in it spiritually that, that we can't really like add up on a sheet. And in so doing, what, what ends up happening is we experience what the battle is like to actually put to death our sin. So the first time in my life that I ever tried fasting, it was a Friday, which I don't know why I tried, tried to do it on a Friday. Because then that night, I ended up going to this pizza party and I failed miserably. I think I ate half a pizza. And then afterwards, I was so racked with guilt. But I didn't realize until years later that I actually hadn't sinned that night. 
Because what's fasting is for is to train ourselves for godliness. It's, it's like having bumpers in the, in the bowling alley, right? It allows you to experience what it's like to throw the ball down the alley, but without the con- potential consequences. It's a way of training for godliness and learning how to deny our flesh and to choose Christ instead. So, these are the obligations of the Christian life. We'll call it generosity. Uh, we'll call it prayer. And then instead of fasting, we'll call it self-control, right? So we are to be generous, prayerful, and self-controlled as Christians. And so how should we approach these obligations? Now, there are basically two mistakes when we try to approach these obligations. The one, as we've already alluded to, is to say that these are necessary in order to maintain our relationship with God and to be assured of heaven, right? These are the people, I like to call them fruit checkers. Uh, These are the people who would say like, okay, The Bible says that we're supposed to do these things, that if we're a real Christian, that we will be doing these things. And so you got to check your fruit to make sure that you are doing these things. And if you are doing these things, then you know you're saved. Well, no, that's not how it works. We, We know we're saved if we simply believe that Christ is ours by faith alone. That's it, okay? So the other side, other way we fall off the, uh, the wagon here, though, is by saying that these things are not required of us at all, that, th- that they aren't obligations, that they're, they're somehow optional. We can, we can choose to give ourselves to them or not. But Scripture doesn't take either one of these approaches. The Bible actually holds both of them at once. We are accepted by God by simply believing the good news of, of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then for all who believe, he promises to work in us the obedience that he requires. One theologian has an article, and the, the title of the article is, Is Obedience Necessary for Salvation? And then the very first thing he writes in the article is, Of course. And then he says, But God gives what he requires. That's the mystery of sanctification. Right? Sanctification is a, a fancy word for the ongoing process of becoming more and more holy in our life. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this. It says, what is sanctification? And the answer is, sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Whereby we are renewed and the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. So notice, our felt experience of growing in holiness Dying to sin and living into righteousness is a gift of God's free grace. Now, with that in mind, listen to what Paul says to the Philippians. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Notice Paul just assumes that they're obeying, just like Jesus assumes that we're doing these things. We could even say Paul considers it an obligation. We should be working out our salvation with fear and trembling, which just means we're aware that God is holy and we are not. And now this fear that Paul talks about here, this isn't fear of somehow not being good enough or or losing our salvation. This is the fear that a child experiences when he comes to the plate And he so desperately wants to hit the ball so his parents are proud of him. It's the fear of disappointing parents that he knows already love and accept him. But notice there's also a promise in this verse. 
We obey. Why? Because God is the one who is at work in us, willing us to act and to do for his good pleasure. Now, this doesn't mean we don't try. This doesn't mean we don't put in effort. This doesn't mean we don't put to death our sin and and put on righteousness. But we do it in his strength and by his grace. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Do you know what this means? This means that if we find ourselves growing in generosity and prayer and self-control, that we did nothing. That was God's gift to us. He he worked it in us by the power of his spirit. Do you know what else this means? If we find ourselves struggling with generosity and prayer and self-control, all we have to do is turn to this gracious, wonderful God and ask that he would give us the grace to do the obligations that he is calling us to do. The writer of the Hebrews says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Uh, In my own life, after I had um, uh, really started following Christ when I was 24, uh, for about six months, I would say, I experienced this really uh, powerful spiritual high where I was reading my Bible, but it was like a, I was like a man possessed, you know? It was like God's spirit had come along and was just carrying me along. And then after about four to six months of that, it, it sort of wore off. And then for another six months, I, I was trying to do all the things that I knew God wanted me to do, but it was just becoming harder and harder and harder until eventually I actually just went back to my old life for a couple of months. And then through God's providential care of me and through having kind of planted myself into a church community, uh, I, uh, I found myself at this Christian um, conference a, a couple months later. And I remember I was listening to this speaker and he was, uh, he was going on about like Romeo and Juliet. It like, had nothing to do with like the Bible or anything. It was really cool, but, but then he stopped And he totally changed tracks in the middle of his talk. And and he said, you know, I was at a coffee shop the other day working on my book. And I said, you know, God, if if I never did one more thing for you again for the rest of my life, would you still love me? And he said, you know what I felt like God said to me? I felt like God said to me, of course I would. You're my child. Of course I would still love you. And he said, and you know what that makes me want to do? That makes me want to do whatever I can for God. And when I heard him say that, I recognized for the first time in my life that I did not know God that way. That I'd always kind of imagined God as this, this, this person who was a little bit more separated and removed from me. And that if I did everything that he said I was supposed to do, then, then he was going to give me like a, a perfect life or whatever. And, and, and the way he just described God in that, in that moment never computed with me. And, and I realized that, that I really just loved me. I loved having life go my way. And I, and I was kind of using God to get my life to go my way. And so what I did, and this, I didn't have an emotional response in this moment at all. I, I just simply thought, well, I don't, I don't think I love God that way. And I thought, well, he's God. 
and he can do anything. So how about I just pray and ask him to make me love him that way? So that's what I started doing. I started just saying, all right, God, if that's who you are, make me love you. And the truth is, now, however many years later, I still pray that prayer because I recognize the coldness of my own heart. I I recognize my ongoing battle with sin. And I'm still asking God uh, to, to make me love him more and more. But there's another danger, and this is specifically what Jesus is focusing on in this passage. And that's not the danger we face in not giving ourselves to these obligations, but it's the corresponding danger that comes when we find ourselves actually giving ourselves to these obligations. Because God will, by his grace, grow us in these things. He will grow us in generosity. He will grow us in a life of prayer. He will help us to become self-controlled. But when we do, we're going to be tempted to do it for the praise of man. We're going to be tempted to do it because it feels really good when somebody pats us on the back for being so generous. When we pray, the temptation is going to be to pray beautiful prayers that other people will say, oh, that was such a wonderful prayer. Or the other temptation is to to not pray publicly because we're so worried about what other people are going to think and that maybe our prayer won't be beautiful enough. Or when we are self-controlled, we're going to be doing it so that people say, wow, you look really great. You've, you've been really self-controlled. I can see it. And then we can say, oh yeah, well, you know, I'm just being self-controlled, you know. Which is ridiculous, but, but that impulse, my sense is, is that's inside all of us. Another, another story. So about five years ago, I was actually about 40 pounds heavier than I am right now. And I was convicted about it. I was convicted about it because I realized I was struggling with gluttony and vanity. I was uh, not exercising self-control when it came to food. And I I could never find clothes that fit right, you know. And so I I kind of just lived in that for most of my adult life. And then I was convicted about it. I I was genuinely convicted that I was not honoring God in those areas in my life. Uh, I wanted to be able to jump on the trampoline with my kids without getting winded. And so I got some accountability uh, I started exercising self-control, I started exercising, um, and uh, I, I got an app on my phone where I could track how much I ate so that I wouldn't, you know, overeat, and in four months, I had lost 45 pounds. It was amazing, right? And everyone was saying, oh, Patrick, you lost all this weight, and I was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> and I realized that I was still struggling with gluttony and vanity, except now it looked totally different, right? So instead of being like gluttonous, like trying to eat all the food that I wanted, I was gluttonous in the way I was trying to control it, right? I would say, I don't even drink soda anymore. I don't like donuts. It it was still gluttony, but it just looked totally different. And the reason is, is because I was still the same person. And so I think what Jesus is pointing out in this passage is the reality of our struggle with sin is more disconnected from our behavior than we think it is. Our, our behavior is important, and I'll tell you, tell you why. But really what happens is, if, if, we're, if we're in that place where we see the obligation and our struggle to get... Wait, I think I'm getting to my next point here. Hold on. Yes, I'm into my next point. So let's, let me just say one more thing before we get to the next point, and then I'm going to say what I'm about to say. So some of us here this morning, right... We're in this place where we see the obligation that God is calling us to. And it may be prayer, it may be giving, it may be self-control, or it may be something else. 
And what we need to hear this morning is that this is a real obligation and that God by his spirit promises to empower you to give yourself to it. Never perfectly in this life, but, but that's a promise. And, and our relationship with him is not contingent on that. Our relationship with him is grounded firmly in the grace of God that he offers us freely in Christ. And then others of us this morning need to hear because we are, we've grown in those areas or we've grown in other areas and we find ourselves being self-controlled. We find ourselves praying faithfully, but we face that temptation of wanting to do it for the praise of man, wanting to do it so that other people will see us and pat us on the back. And that is a very uh, dark temptation. And it's not just that, there's other benefits from it as well, which does take us to our final point. The reason Christians perform their obligations. And there are worldly rewards to these things. Um, so self-control, right? If, if you're somebody who's really self-controlled, you don't necessarily have to be a Christian because there's great benefits that come from exercising self-control. That's, that's how you rise in our merit-based world is by exercising self-control. Uh, there's lots of benefits to, to giving and being generous. Like even if you are somebody who does it secretly, just the feeling of being the generous person that you are. And we can, we can find ourselves basking in that with pride and, and self-righteousness. Even praying, praying is something that there's benefits in uh, that, that aren't even necessarily connected to being religious. Did you know that there's neurological benefits to just being prayerful and, and, ha- and giving yourself to times of med- meditation? People who do that, even like Buddhists, who are not Christian at all, if they spend an hour every day meditating, there is noticeable benefits uh, in their mental health, in their cardiovascular health, and in their overall ability to be calm and at peace the rest of the day. And so there's plenty of benefits in these activities, not even to mention the temptation that Jesus is talking about here of having other people pat us on the back. And I think if we're honest, we experience ourselves kind of between the two, right? So we can be the person who knows that I need to give myself to these obligations, and, and we struggle to do that. And the reason is, is because we believe, really, that the reward is in not doing those things, right? The, the ultimate example of this is, is the person who is just a sloth, and their, their reward is in the pleasure of just sitting there and, and not doing anything, right? But then the opposite end is what happened to me when I lost weight, is as soon as you go into the area where you are giving yourself to that thing, what you recognize is that there's all these benefits from it, and our selfish, sinful hearts will immediately begin to start gripping onto those other benefits and being satisfied in those rewards rather than in the rewards that God is offering us in them. Uh, one of the things Jesus says here in the passage is don't let your left hand know what your right, or your right hand know what your left hand is doing or one of that thing, you know? But the truth is we really like it when our right hand is watching our left hand do something. We love standing outside of ourselves and watching ourselves be so good because it feels really good. And actually, it's much easier to think God is happy with us when we're doing the right things because we're happy with ourselves. And so God must be happy with us as well. Uh, But Jesus says that we should give and pray and fast in secret. And he says this, three times he repeats this. He says, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, some people might suggest that this is just another uh, 
uh, instance of self-interest here, right? Okay, sure. So instead of going for the reward of the praise of other people or the other rewards that are offered from being, you know, more self-controlled, you're going for these religious, spiritual, heavenly, far-off rewards. Sure, whatever. It's, it's no different. But, but it's, it's actually very different, and here's why. Uh, Jesus never tells us what the reward is. He doesn't tell us when we'll get it. In fact, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he said our reward would be heavenly. So in, the first, or in verse 12 of chapter 5, he's talking about uh, persecution, and he says this, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. So the reward is simply trusting God that his reward that he has to offer, whatever that might be, is better than anything that this world has to offer. So now imagine yourself, right? You have just given money to a great cause. And you, you really meant to do it secretly. But then somebody notices. And then they say to you, oh, wow, thank you for doing that. And then the immediate feeling that it, you're tempted to have is, well, you're welcome. Well, the Lord has blessed me, and so I want... You know, we go right into that. It's, it's like, it's to, to be able to stay right before the Lord with our good works is such a difficult task. And so, and so we are constantly struggling between the two, between, well, should I do the thing that I know God is calling me to do? Because I'm having trouble believing that that's better than, than not doing it. And then once we do the thing that God's calling us to do, to be able to do it in secret, to, to be satisfied with whatever reward God intends to offer us, that is so difficult for our flesh. And so, so I, I'll just be honest, what ends up happening to me is I'll, I'll give myself to a certain area of self-discipline for a while, but then because there's no reward for it <laughs> that I can find, I just slip back. I slip back into it. And so then I'll get myself up later to, to come back and to give myself to whatever he's calling me to again. And then maybe there'll be some reward. Someone will notice and they'll pat me on the back. I'll feel really good and that might get me going for a little bit longer. But then those rewards will fade and they'll go away. And then all of a sudden it becomes hard and arduous to continue to, to obey or to do what I know God uh, is obligating me as a child of the king to do. And then I'll fall away. And I'm very sure that this is a similar experience that all of you have. And so really, the, the, the beautiful thing is being able to trust and believe that God's reward is better. Get your Bibles out, actually, and turn to Philippians chapter 3. I don't have this on the screen. I'm going to end this way. Philippians 3 is page uh, 1,828. Actually, we'll look at, uh, starting in verse 7 in 1,829. And I'll wait for the leaves to quiet down. Okay. So, so I think this is what Paul is talking about here. What, what I've just been talking about. This... This idea to, to know God more deeply, right? Because I think ultimately that's the reward. 
And he says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So all of my striving to be holy in my own strength, all of my performing so other people would pat me on the back and think I'm great, right? All of that I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. Then he goes on, verse eight. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He gave it all up, right? I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, right? He's he's not earning his own righteousness, but that which is through faith in Christ, simply believing that Jesus gives him everything he needs to be accepted by God, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So, so friends, the reward is knowing him. The reward of giving ourselves to the obligations of the Christian life is knowing him more deeply, because here's why, here's why. God does not need our good works but our neighbors do. God does not need our prayers, but other people do. God does not need our generosity, but other people do. God does not need our self-discipline, but our neighbors do. And so when we are trusting him for the reward that he offers, which is knowing him more deeply, right? We then become a vessel through which, right? He can use us to proclaim the gospel, to love other people, to build up his church, right? But if we slip over and we start doing it for our own pleasure, or our own pats on the back, immediately the world knows it and they say, you're no different than anybody else. You're doing it because you're trying to earn something. You're doing it because, right? But when they see people unselfconsciously giving themselves to religious duties, for nothing but the praise of an unseen God, they, they know, the world knows. They know that something's different. Oh, man, I'm running out of time here. But So earlier in chapter five, we looked at it. He says, um, do your good works right in front of other people so that they may glorify your father who is in heaven. And it almost seems like it's contradicting what he's saying here in chapter six, right? Well, not to do your good works. You could do them in secret. And the difference is, is who's the object of our good works, right? If we're we're doing them for God and for his glory, the world can tell, friends. But if we're doing them for the world's praise and the world's glory and our own power, the world knows that too, and they automatically dismiss us. And so really what this, this balance does is it keeps us just so dependent on him, right? We need him so that we may perform them for his glory only and his reward he offers. And then we need him to keep us there because we are going to slip off to the other side because we're sinners, right? And so it just, it keeps us in this intimate, close, beautiful relationship with him. And maybe we can all become a little bit more like Paul where we, where we want, we're willing to suffer because we so desperately want to know him more. Let's pray.
Father, we come to you this morning and, and we thank you for this warning from our Savior. This warning not to perform our religious obligations for any other reason than the reward that you offer us. We thank you that he assumes we will be doing these things. But we thank you for the rest of scripture which shows us that they are done only in your strength, by your grace, through simply receiving and resting in Christ alone, by faith alone. We pray this all in Jesus' name.